Welcome to our teaching series entitled The Advent Conspiracy. We hope you enjoy listening. Everybody out there who uh, may have tried to find this podcast, but we had some technical difficulties, and uh, actually I tried to re-record this sermon, and uh, it got lost again. So, uh, third time's a charm, but uh, this is uh, week two of our series in Advent Conspiracy. And uh, <clears throat> I actually want to start this morning by asking a question. Um, and the question is this. Can Christmas really change the world? I think this question actually has everything to do with this morning's teaching, uh, which is entitled Love All. Can the coming of this baby in a manger 2,000 years ago really actually change the world? Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, it would actually appear that the further and further you get away from Bethlehem in this little stable, the more blood, the more warfare, the more violence, the more greed, the more oppression that you get. Uh, there was blood, warfare, violence, greed, oppression before Jesus came, and those things are still going on. So this is a huge question. Can Christmas, and did Christmas, did Jesus really change the world? Uh, Matthew, the gospel writer, seems to think so. Uh, he talks about a new kingdom that will never end that Jesus is bringing. He talks about systems and empires falling and being replaced by another kingdom. He talks about preparing the way for this new way of being in the world. And, and all of this talk about change and about the world being a different place hinges on the birth of this baby. It's as if Matthew is saying all of our hopes and dreams as Israel and, and really as humanity rest in this one event. They're all tied up in this moment right here, right now. So far in this series we've talked about spending less. Uh, last week, <clears throat> excuse me, two weeks ago I talked, uh, it challenged you to, to think about spending less, not being consumed by the systems and the Herods of our day who are influence, influenced and motivated by power and kingdom and empire. And I, I invited you to buy one less gift and be creative as you give. Uh, and as you do, redirect those funds towards something we'll do together regarding hunger. Um, so we'll be taking an offering on Christmas Eve and all of that money that hopefully was is redirected will be redirected towards hunger. Uh, last week, I challenged you to give more, um, but the challenge was about uh, really kind of grounded in this theological reality of the incarnation. Um, I don't want us to give more out of the, uh, this belief that the, the sum of our resources is really what we have to give and the pool from which we have to draw from. Um, I think the greatest gift that we have to give and that that we give to the world is not the sum of our resources, but rather Emmanuel, that God is with us, that he is here among us, and that we now freely give this to the world. And so this morning, I want to dive into this love all. Um, turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you would. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. And uh, I'll share a brief a uh, little story. Sometimes on Saturday nights before uh, teaching, uh, I try to test these things out on uh, <laughs> my kids. They end up being the awakened audience, and kids get, people get saved every week, slain in the spirit, the whole deal. It's pretty awesome. You should see it. Um, but I was reading this particular passage, and Lyndon, my three-year-old, was sitting with me, and, and so I said, Matthew 5, verse 43, says this, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And she kind of stops me and she looks up and she says, Dad, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy? <laughs> As if to say, we're not supposed to hate anyone, let alone our enemies. Um, 
But Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is the end of chapter five in Matthew's gospel. It's the end of a section uh, that we call the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has been taking what Moses previously said in a conversation that was going on with Moses, and he keeps it going. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people actually look at Matthew as, uh, or, or the Sermon on the Mount, as kind of a new law, a new giving of the law from Jesus instead of Moses. And ironically enough, Matthew is split up into five sections, uh, and this particular sermon is actually split up into five pretty convenient sections, all, of course, connecting back to Torah, five, uh, first five books of the Bible. But this is the last of about six laws that Jesus, uh, that, that Jewish people would have been absolutely familiar with because of what had already happened with Moses. And Jesus either, he takes them and either upholds them or he tweaks them, uh, or in this case, he takes it a step further. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this, why does Jesus feel it necessary to take this one step further? Why does Jesus tell his followers that they should love their enemies and pray for those who persecute you, persecute them? And I want to offer a few thoughts as we kind of turn this thing back around towards, uh, can Christmas really change the world? I think Jesus takes this one step further because what he's asking them to do is completely unnatural. Uh, turn to Romans chapter seven, if you would, and in Romans chapter 7, this is Paul, of course, uh, in, in probably his most theologically dense work in the entire New Testament. But he says this in verse 15, uh, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And so Paul is talking about this uh, tricky spot that he finds himself in. Um, there's this battle going on in ourselves where in a very real sense, those who follow Jesus have a foot in both worlds. In the one sense, we're new creations. Paul says in, later uh, in, the, in the New Testament that uh, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. New creation is for you and, and in you. And because of Jesus, something has fundamentally been altered in our beings. And yet there's this part of us that remains. And it's this part, part of us for whom it's absolutely natural to love those who love us and hate those who hate us. Uh, friends, it's it comes very naturally to love those who love us, to care for those who care for us, to accept those who accept us. It's not very difficult for us, even even those of us who uh, who are stuck in sin, which is all of us. Uh, why is this not very difficult? I mean, why why does that come naturally to us? And if you think about it, uh, because it serves me, because I'm still the center of my universe. Uh, maybe to say it a bit more philosophically, my existential existence as a self is based on a view that has me at the center. And so when people love me, accept me, agree with me, care for me, I have no problem returning love because it serves me. But we don't need resurrection for this. We don't need a cross for this. And, and quite frankly, this view of self and, and of our existence is completely natural as sons, and, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Because this is the lie of Genesis 3, that our existence is fundamentally about me and my individual needs and desires. If you think back to Genesis 3 and, and the tree and, and the choice to eat, the problem with this is that it's diametrically opposed to the biblical notion of personhood and humanity. The biblical story says that we exist truly free as humans only when we're bound in relationship with the other. This is actually what we were made for. This is what we were created for. And this is how, if you think about it, this is the very God whose image we bear. 
This is how God exists in community, perfect trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit relating to, to one another. And so when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's offering a new way of being in the world as the people of God that requires a fundamental shift in the human heart that's not only unnatural and counterintuitive, but completely impossible for us to reach on our own, at which point we desperately need what Christmas brings. Jesus reminds his followers of the new Israel, this new humanity, this new way of being that he's calling them into, and it's often one that is unnatural in that sense. I think it's also, he, he has to tell them and invite them into this because our first response is judgment. Uh, I know we've talked a little bit about this before, uh, and we've covered this ground, but it's imperative that we continue to return to this because for my money, so much of our struggle stems from this issue, this reality, that our first response is judgment and not love your, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the, tree of the, eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The all-important question of Genesis 3 is this, what did Adam and Eve gain by eating the fruit? Now, during my little prep time with my kids, it was hilarious. Dahlia, my middle child, was uh, brushing the hair on, a, on this pony that we got last Christmas from Santa Ron, and, uh, who also also known as Grandpa Ron. But he gave us this pony, and it's not a real pony, uh, although you might be frightened if you saw it. Uh, it's kind of this mechanical thing, battery-operated, and it actually makes all kinds of horse noises and everything. So Dahlia is brushing the hair of Butterscotch, the pony. And I get all serious, you know, as I'm practicing my teaching, and I say, what did Adam and Eve gain by eating the fruit? And just without even stopping, without missing a beat, she's brushing the hair, and, and she chimes in, and she says, they die. And she just keeps going, go, keep, continues brushing the hair of, the, of the, the animal. Which, as a pastor, you know, I have to think, bravo, brilliant, theologically spot on. And as a dad, I'm like, boy, that's not going to go well on the bus if she says that to some kid. Um, but she's spot on, dead on. She nailed it. Uh, what did Adam and Eve gain by eating the fruit? They gained the knowledge of good and evil. This is not a trick question. They took on a responsibility and a knowledge of something that they were not created for. They took on a burden that they were not created to bear. They moved from the possibility of death to the assurance of death. Because in that moment, as they chose to, to eat that fruit, they, they moved themselves from inside of God's loving boundaries and created order to a place outside. What happens in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve is absolutely critical and fundamentally a game changer because the fabric of the created order and the intentions of God are now torn because of Adam and Eve's choice. And not only their choice, but their knowledge, their knowledge of good and evil changes the relationships that existed in creation between themselves and God, between them and one another, and the, between the, them and the world that they lived in. 
And the author of Genesis expresses this in terms of nakedness, which I find absolutely striking. Prior to this knowledge, if you think about the story of Genesis, prior to them eating from the tree, when the world was right and in proper order, the author of Genesis says that they were naked and unashamed and they walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden called Delight. There was nothing to hide. There was no judging and therefore there was no shame. Now get this. There was no judging, no knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, there was no shame because shame comes from our perceived inadequacies and our inability to live up to the expectations of others. So, judging and shame are two sides of the same coin. They come together part and parcel. You get one, you get the other. Prior to our knowledge of good and evil and our judging, there was no shame. There was only harmony. There was shalom. And since Genesis 3, there's this new reality. Now turn back to Romans chapter 5. And I'm actually going to do that on my computer here as well. So Romans chapter 5. And we're looking at verses 12 to 14. They say this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged to anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who is the pattern of the one to come. Now, whatever you believe about sin, original sin, and Augustine and others, it's suffice it to say that you and I are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And so our first response is not love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us because there's some something fundamentally flawed in the human condition that does not allow us to live from this place. The Bible calls it sin. It traces it all the way back to the choice of humans represented by Adam and Eve in this Genesis story. The bottom line is this, the net result of all of this and the reason Jesus invites his followers beyond Moses is because naturally we judge. We determine who's in and who's out. We draw lines. We set the expectations and we measure ourselves and others over and against them. This is our autonomic response. You don't have to teach kids this. They do it naturally. We naturally hate our enemies and those who persecute us because we're descendants of Adam and Eve. But the way of Jesus, who is the second Adam, according to Paul, who is the, the pattern of the one to come, uh, he, who, is the new, who makes new humanity possible, is the way of love the way of love for the other. To follow Jesus is to love the other and to withhold judgment because this was not intended for us to do. This is a burden we were never intended to bear. And Jesus, if you think about it, Jesus offers freedom from it. He did not, Jesus doesn't come and offer more law in the sense of rules. He's offering freedom from the ways that we were never meant to live, but that we're stuck in, including judging one another. This, <laughs> this is good news. Because Jesus has invited his followers, and he has, to, he has to invite his followers and remind his followers to love their enemies because it's unnatural for us to live this way, and because what's natural is judgment and shame. Finally, if I could close this thing up, he does this because the gospel is foolishness to the world. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, because what the gospel is foolishness to the world. Paul, in commenting on what Jesus said didn't said, 
in 1 Corinthians 1, verse uh, 18. I'm going to read this from, from the uh, living, New Living Translation. He says, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. And so when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Friends, it is absolutely foolish and counterintuitive to believe that love is what is what will change people. It's foolish to believe that love will change people whose hearts are filled with wrath and envy and hate and evil. It's totally ridiculous to believe that love and self-sacrifice will topple systems of oppression and power. And it's ridiculous to believe that in order for us to experience life, we have to die. It's crazy to believe that through death, Jesus conquers Satan and evil. But here's the truth. What God calls good in Genesis 1 and 2 is the Hebrew word called tov. Now, stick with me here, okay? It's crazy to believe that love is the thing that's going to change the world. But actually, if we go back to the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 and tease something out, I think something becomes very, very profound and beautiful. The Hebrew word tov in Genesis 1 and 2 it's found all over Genesis 1 and 2, but it's in that poem of God says this, and, and then he says it's good, it's good, it's good. And in verses 11 and 12, there's this beautiful talk about when God creates the trees and the vegetation. And I want to offer a, uh, uh, a revised definition, if you will, of good. Uh, and I learned this from this rabbi that I've been studying with, and he says this, the good... What God calls good is the actualization of potential life that is embedded in creation when creation itself brings it forth with the seeds of future life in it. Now, let me say it again. The actualization of potential life. So what the actualization of, of potential life that's embedded in creation when creation itself brings it forth with the seeds of future life in it. When a child is born, particularly a woman, a girl, she is born with all of the seeds of potential life already embedded in her. So the seeds of potential life are already within humanity when they're born. When a tree produces fruit, it does so with the seeds of potential life embedded in it. Friends, creation is not static. It's not, it's not something that was God spoke and then it's done, complete, never to be touched again. But it's actually dynamic. It's ever moving and flowing and evolving. The question is, in the creation story, who are the stewards 
of this potential life that is embedded in creation. Humanity. This is the invitation of God. And how are humans created to live? Prior to Genesis 3, Genesis 1 and 2, how are humans created to live? With love as our autonomic response. Not judgment and shame, not judging between good and evil, but love, selfless, self-sacrificial giving of oneself to the other. This is how we were created to live, and this is the environment in which we were to steward the potential life that's embedded in creation. Friends, I would submit to you that as foolish as it sounds to say that love will change the world, it's absolutely true. Because embedded in the act of love... Embedded in love and actions that come from love are the nutrients required to nurture the seeds of life embedded in creation. You see, love and actions that are based in love possess the nutrients that are required to nurture the seeds of life that are embedded in creation. On the contrary, self-centeredness self-centeredness and actions that are born out of selfishness, they die alone and unto themselves because selfishness and its offspring will not last. They do not possess the potential for life. They only possess the potential for death. They cannot nurture the potential for life. Acts of selfishness and acts of of self-centeredness. And so the foolishness of God is that actions of self-sacrifice not self-preservation, actually lead to life. Jesus reminds his disciples to love all because actions rooted in love, even when it costs you your life, despite what the world says, actually lead to life because it's only love that can nurture the seeds of life that's embedded in creation. And this is what we're supposed to bring forth. This is what we're supposed to nurture and steward. This is the invitation of God to Adam and Eve. There's, there are, there's potential life embedded in creation all around you wherever you look. Adam, Eve, steward this. Care for it. Nurture it. And the only thing that will nurture these seeds of potential life is love. Self-sacrifice. Giving of oneself to the other. This is how creation is supposed to work. And so friends, this morning I started with a question. Can Christmas really change the world? I think it's the wrong question. The question we need to be asking is, can Christmas change my heart? Will I allow Christmas to change me? Can the hope of Christmas, the life, death, the resurrection of Jesus, change this broken heart? Change this heart whose autonomic response is judging and shame? Will I choose this Christmas to love someone in my life that doesn't deserve love? Will I follow the way of Jesus to love someone, even if it costs me my pride, my money, my dignity, even my life? Because embedded in my actions, when they are rooted in love, are the nutrients required to nurture the seeds of life embedded in creation. Only actions of love will call forth life. Self-centeredness, selfishness cannot call forth life. It only 
leads to death. This is the only way the world will change. This is the only hope that Christmas will change. This is the question I have to ask. Will Christmas change me? Will I allow Christmas to change me? Will I love others even when they don't deserve it? Because beyond this, nothing matters. It's not worth it to even ask the other questions. Because if it's not, if it can't change me, it can't change anything. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You can find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakening community or on Twitter at awakening community. See you next time.